Welcome back to Investing for Ocean Impact, the podcast providing the business case for conserving our ocean. I'm Dorothy Hemp. A revenue-generating business model is key to attract private sector investments. Today, we will investigate the opportunity to combine investments into infrastructure, such as renewable energy, with coastal and marine nature-based solutions. We will also get a national government's view on the market opportunities for such projects and jointly discuss the need for other policy signals as enabling conditions. Today my guests are Carolina Urmeneta, Head of the Office of Climate Change in Chile's Ministry of the Environment. Yes, hello. Alejandro Litovsky, founder of the management consultancy company Earth Security. Hi, Dorothy. Pleasure to be here. And Craig Kogut, impact investor and founder of Pegasus Capital Advisors. Dorothy, thank you. It's great to be with everybody. Carolina, I wanted to start with you. And if you could tell us a bit from your national perspective, how important are nature-based solutions for Chile and particularly with respect to ocean conservation and restoration activities? Well, it is really very important because we believe that they are one of the most efficient ways to protect sustainable managed and restored damaged ecosystem. They provide sustainable, cost-effective, multi-purpose and flexible alternatives and they jointly contribute to mitigation, resilience of territories, safeguarding biodiversity and ecosystem services. And they allow greater participation of local communities and indigenous people. And from our perspective, we include nature-based solution in our new NDC uh, for the Paris Agreement and also in our new long-term strategy that we present in COP26. And we include concrete goals in a component that we call integration because it has mitigation and adaptation and we have forests, oceans, of course, wetlands, petlands and also circular economy that we think, again, it contributes to this. Well, you you mentioned the nationally determined contribution to NDC. Can you elaborate a little bit on what um, activities Chile put forward on oceans? Yes, like the protection, we have 43% of our economic exclusive zone protected, but we need information and we need to develop indicators in order to have more information and to take good decisions about this protected areas and that is why we put goals in order to have the sustainable management plans for these areas and also to protect at least 10% of underrepresented marine ecoregions like for example Humboldt currents and things like that so these are concrete goals that we put and we would like to go on that like firmly. Alejandro, hearing what Carolina just said and thinking about investment opportunities in the ocean, where do you see the opportunities lying here? Well, look, uh, you were talking earlier about climate resilient infrastructure investments. And I think, you know, with the climate scenarios that we are 
facing an enormous increased exposure of coasts to extreme weather events, we should start to think about any kind of coastal infrastructure investment going forward. It has to be developed in a way that is also restoring and regenerating marine ecosystems and the value that they bring. And that link is also a mental link to understand the value that, that nature brings to coast and to infrastructure. And that, and that is, I think, something that we all need to achieve together. Look, we are seeing in Australia the role that mangroves are playing in providing a safe harbor for anchored fishing fleets that when extreme weather events are hitting, the fleets are being placed inside the mangroves. They're seeking shelter in nature. And now is the time to think about realizing the value of these natural assets in ways that we haven't done before, where we've mostly taken these for granted. And as you know, you know mangroves are, are a type of green infrastructure that are slowing, they can slow the impact of a tidal wave by something like 70%. Uh, and they save some $65 billion a year in avoided losses through, through storms and floods. So I think it will be easier for governments, uh, for investors, for project developers to see a clearer case on what coastal ecosystems can do for them when we begin to see how much more cost effective it is to protect coastal assets with nature than doing it in other, uh, you know, in other ways, uh, such as cement or so on, you know, which is, by the way, so carbon intensive. You mentioned cost effectiveness. Do, do you have an example where you already applied some of that thinking or where it's actually happening on the ground? Yeah, look, but I have a great example. We, we, we worked with, um, with CDC Group, you know, the UK's development finance institution, uh, a year or so ago in a project in Pakistan to assess the value that mangrove restoration could bring to a coastal power infrastructure project. And this is, you know, a, a, a project uh, 100 kilometers south of Karachi, wind turbines dotted along uh, a floodable mudplain, you know, which is critically exposed to, to tidal erosion. And as it turns out, you know, the mangroves being planted by this operator will actually save the project developer some $7 million over 25 years in terms of maintenance costs to turbines, to civil infrastructure such as roads, in terms of the tidal erosion and avoided floods. Now, this is 20 times the return on investment that investing in nature can bring to a, to a you know, infrastructure project that is using, uh, let's say, the so-called asset protection value that coastal nature can, can bring. And did the project developer include the value of nature from the get-go into the project design? It's a great question because... The original intention for restoring mangroves was much more of a policy response to a combination of, you know, local regulations, as well as the investors, you know, concerns on remediation and, you know, something to do with the environmental impact of the project. And so I think in many ways, part of what we need to do is to move from looking at nature at the end of the decision process and an investment, you know, as a sort of do no harm And that's really the job for an ESG team, you know, at the end of the process. And what we need to do is to bring the process forward to the investment thesis, which is basically what are the business models and the technologies and the approaches that a particular investor is choosing to invest in? And why does it do that? You know, and so I think um, many of these examples we see around the world, 
to a large extent, you know, and to Carolina's point uh, and the importance of government, you know, they are they are done in response to a policy and in response to a mandate or in response to a safeguard by investors. And, and I think it's very important that we start to move to a different investment paradigm that is basically seeing nature as an asset in the equation of an investment as opposed to a liability or, or an externality. Craig, do you agree with that? Well, I, I do. And I think very strongly. I, I And I think there's a major education effort needed for investors. And, and the example that Alejandro uses is, that, you know, it's a typical infrastructure investor doesn't think about nature other than, geez, what's it going to cost me to not do harm rather than what can nature do? And when we look just at the oceans, I mean, the oceans are really a, a huge asset in terms of feeding the planet, in terms of sequestering carbon. And, and we talked about this at Glasgow a bunch of you, Dorothy and I, on some panels together. It's shocking to me how little we speak about the oceans and the vast potential. And there's such an opportunity. And mangroves are a great example in terms of coastal protection. And as Carolina mentioned, when coastal communities and so much of the world's population lives on coasts, and the resilient potential mentioned by both Alejandro and Carolina, as an example, are just so great. And it, and it really should be first thinking, how do we build in resilient projects? I mean, it's another form of insurance, obviously, effectively, and we can't get insurance today for the coastal communities we need. So I do think whether it's for food system, I mean, the, the oceans are the great win-win-win, again, as Carolina said. I mean, it hits employment, it hits fishermen, fisherwomen, it hits um, all of the things we need to worry about for planet and human health. And do you think then what Alejandro said that also nature-based solution can be included in the business models from the start? Yeah, but again, it's not the way typical infrastructure investors think. So it, whether it's a policy person or a typical ocean, let's say someone with a, an oceans fund, they're not typically thinking about resilient communities or city infrastructure. So I, I think we have sort of a disconnect among investor types. And also, as we've everyone on this podcast will have talked about, we don't know how to measure the positives of nature-based solutions. You know, we, we talk about carbon, whether there's a good value or not for carbon. With mitigation, we know that. So I think both in terms of sort of a more broader ecosystem thinking rather than sort of this division of thinking among, okay, I'm a solar investor, I'm a fisheries investor. The two don't really talk to each other. I, I think we need to think more general ecosystems and government and NGOs have a role in getting us to do that. And the other thing I we need to figure out is how do we help people value the contributions in nature, biodiversity, and, you know, at, at least get it on the table the way we do with carbon, even though, again, we're not really quantifying carbon very well today. I totally agree. And I have two reactions. We have also a good example in Chile about considering nature-based solution. In fact, in the city of Yanquiwe, in the south of Chile, I don't know if you know Chile, but we are a long country and in the south, we were having a problem, this is specific situation in Yanquiwe, because we have a lack of green areas for population, which is something strange because we have a lot of forests, but in the city, we were having this issue. And what the government and the local government decide was to maintain and restore a natural system of wetlands and establish this natural system as a space for the city. And look what happened, because 
beside the benefits that we know about conservation of areas of natural value, the provision of a space for recreation and contact with native flora and fauna, and the protections against floods and disaster risk management, the investment required for this was only the 10% of the investment that the local government would have if they would go for a conventional green areas. So that is really interesting. We, we have some of these examples. We want to have more of them. But I totally agree with what Craig saying about putting value of this thing because we know that these are cost-effective solutions, but we need to show this. For example, to local governments, because they are thinking in conventional ways. For example, in this case, they were thinking in conventional green areas and they have there the wetland and they were not considering to use that. And I think what is good for nature-based solution is to consider the risks because we have, for example, a map, an interactive map about risks. And for example, the risk that fishermen are going to have because of climate change, they, I think, understand what they need to do. And I think that may be a good way to talk and to go for solutions because until, of course, we have a really big coast area, of course, and we know that we are going to have increase in downtime of fishermen's coves and We are going also to have uh, coastal settlements flooding, okay, due to the effects of climate change. And of course, we are going to have to work with communities about this risk and about what is going to happen. Alejandra, what, what are your reactions to what Carolina just explained from Chile? I would just perhaps point to two things in terms of implications and, and what can be done about it. You know, the first is, is perhaps to Craig's earlier point, which is the that there's a need for real awareness, you know, and, and the work that we did with CDC created such an important internal conversation within a DFI with, you know, almost six billion pounds in, in assets under management. The appetite was there, but the evidence was missing. The real question is, you know, how do you take that evidence and apply it to an entire portfolio, let's say, of infrastructure assets along the coast, and we're talking continental levels. And the problem, I think, to, to what Craig was saying, and, you know, is that in many ways, we're talking about a new engineering mindset, which is not part of the traditional paradigm of how infrastructure developers and investors really think about infrastructure to begin with. And so I think creating the evidence and locating that, I think, is very important. Now, to Carolina's point, and I thought that stacked up very well, because, you know, I would say, that the incentives to really drive this conversation, I see two windows of opportunity here. Uh, one has to do with the fact that climate risk is coming, you know, and that is very clear. No one needs convincing anymore. Uh, and you're already starting to see, you know, if you look at an infrastructure investment and you're looking at the, what is the kind of insurance premium or who is going to be the, the reinsurer of that insurance, You know, those discussions are really starting to change. And I think, therefore, that if you put forward uh, the evidence of nature being a more cost-effective way to deal with that climate risk that is increasing and is going to continue to increase, 
I think that's, you know, opportunity number one. The second opportunity, which is something Carolina mentioned at the very beginning, I thought was interesting, which, is, which was the point on blue carbon. And interestingly, we're talking about nature as a resilience of infrastructure, nature's adaptation, nature's asset protection, but nature doesn't do one thing, right? And what is powerful about this is that nature will sequester carbon while it's doing these things. And, you know, on the one hand, I think that the carbon sequestration value of nature-based solutions, in my opinion, today is the main driver of investor interest in adding nature to infrastructure, because it basically means that they can build an additional revenue stream within carbon markets of projects, infrastructure projects that were probably, you know, meant to be doing something else. And that, I think, is really sparking an interest. But... but Having said that, you know, I think that the blue carbon agenda really needs some problematizing, you know, and to make sure that that it just doesn't occupy all of our attention because in losing losing track of all these other fundamental values that nature brings from the protection, the biodiversity restoration, uh, you know, with fisheries and local communities and, and food security and so on and so forth. But again, I would say disaster risk and blue carbon to me feel like the two wedges, you know, the, the real opportunities to drive this agenda in a, in a more ambitious way. And Craig, you, you were engaged in uh, two funds that invest along the coast and in, in the ocean. When you talk with other investors, how does this argument resonate? Or is there really much more um, translation to be done in order to bring more conventional investors on board? I think there's a lot of work to be done. And I agree there, there's so much opportunity, but the education gap, even on blue carbon, I mean, the potential, like we're, we're fanatic, as you know, Dorothy, about seaweed, kelp, oysters, and what they can do um, potentially in terms of storing carbon. The potential, even with blue carbon, I think is so not understood in the mainstream. There, there are investors who get it and they're beginning to wake up, but I think there, there is so much to be unlocked. One of our funds is a coral fund, as you know, where our focus is resilient reefs. And their investors, you know, it's in some ways it's it is a biodiversity concrete ecosystem message. So the investors who we're attracting there, in some ways it's easier. General ocean investing, I think, is harder. What why there's again, having just been a cop, there's something about the rainforest. But I think we do have more education work to explain to people the multiple benefits the ocean brings in the way the rainforest does. And do you have maybe another example along the pipeline that you're looking at that could help elaborate a bit what this project could look like? Sure. Let me, well, maybe give two examples. Um, one is in an island in the Bahamas, which was wiped out by a hurricane, Grand Bahama. It has one of the best protective reefs. Uh, it's a resilient reef north of Grand Bahama. A number of the Bahamas reefs are. But um, in the last major hurricane, the whole island was destroyed. It happens to be the closest island for in the Bahamas to Palm Beach, Florida. It's a 10-minute plane flight, basically. They import all their food, by the way, um, which is crazy from the United States. But there are some amazing both technology companies and the real estate opportunity to use the reef to protect against hurricanes, to provide resilience, and at the same time, build a critical infrastructure on this island 
sitting off the coast, which provides potentially for tourism, which will support the reefs, food production, aquaculture, solar power, which can what the island doesn't have. I mean, this is a real ecosystem approach to build an island which has tremendous real estate value when you think about it. So, I mean, the economic potential, if you can make this island resilient for the population, um, is just overwhelming. On the other hand, we're looking very closely in the Mesoamerican reefs at things like mangroves and helping to the point of fishermen and fisherwomen in terms of basically protecting the fishing fleets and really supporting fish production and resilient production um, with something which has multiple benefits as well. Carolina, I wanted to come back to you. You mentioned before we need more investment and there is obviously a role for the private sector finance here. So what is happening in Chile for sort of helping to enable investments coming from the private sector? Again, two things. I, I totally agree that we need to put ocean at the level of another discussion. And that is the reason why in COP25 we made like the blue COP. And we put ocean in the formal decisions of COPs, okay? And that was continued, of course, by COP26. And the mandate is to go and to have information in order to take decisions. And that is really important because we need more information about it. Uh, what happened at COP26 was also that we signed the third declaration of Because of the Ocean, which is similar to the forest that you were saying, Craig. I think uh, we probably need to communicate this more. But that decision is really important because it's a compromise to have concrete actions on protecting and conservation the ocean. So there we have some commitments in COP26. And regarding the private sector, I think what we have that is good example is we're starting to work a lot with financial institutions, okay? And we have two examples that I think it's really good. One is for the finance ministry in Chile that we put green foreign bonds, okay? It's not for oceans, but we have like a clean energy, clean transport, and some things about adaptation, little one, but we have some things of that. And what was interesting was that they have the great results ever for a foreign bond, okay? So it was like the finance ministry that told us in the environment ministry, okay, what are you doing? This is great. We have the lower risk ever and the great demand that we have in a long time. So this was really good sign for all the financial sector here in Chile. And what we are doing is to work with the financial institutions in order they understand the risks that we are going to face regarding climate change. And they have a lot of interest in relation with oceans and with forests because we have a lot of imports in Chile and exportation and we have ports and we have a lot of activities that are going to have problems with climate change and I think that are good signs that we need to work more with them. I think we could have good results on that but we don't have yet but we're working for you. <laughs> 
So Craig, hearing this, what would be from your perspective sort of also the right policy signals or other sort of conditions that would make it easier or the, the money flow quicker to the ground? Well, the c countries are obviously different and, and Chile is a wonderful place to invest. It's very investor friendly. Obviously not every jurisdiction is, is, is quite as easy. You know, one overriding issue with climate investing today is currency. I mean, if, if we ask investors what's the single biggest risk, it's currency. Just given what we've seen with devaluations, I mean, if you're focusing on emerging markets, that's an issue and governments can do certain things there, even individual governments to protect investors. That's a bold thing to do and that may more require things at the international level to do that. Um, there's some businesses that are either euro or US dollar denominated that eliminates that issue. But uh, apart from that, I think it's having policies that are conducive to support sort of this ecosystem approach and working with low, often as Carolina mentioned, it's the local authorities who need to be educated. There's only so much a national government can do. And there though, the national government working with local authorities to help with permitting, to put in policies that are friendly towards the right type of development, I think is really crucial. And having local stakeholder involvement. And there too, what we found is if you explain the value of nature-based solutions, in many ways, these the local populations get it better than the investors. But I think having local stakeholder involvement, both at the municipal level, but also the community level is absolutely crucial. Alejandro, do you agree? Well, yes, look, but I think we, we, we're missing a part of the discussion, you know, I mean, we have a crazy situation, which is in the oceans, we have a massive overinvestment in overcapacity and distractive methods such as bottom trolling that are completely destroying everything, you know? Even if we manage to convince, you know, a very small handful of responsible investors to divest from certain things, it would be a bit of what's happening with oil and gas, you know, as, as companies have been taken private private equity is coming in in a completely unaccountable way. And so I think that, you know, we also need to be talking about the fact that addressing this problem is not just about a pipeline of biodiversity projects, but about how countries manage their natural resources. And, and there's a financing element to this that I think we can do something about. The trend is not going to stop until governments make the difficult political decisions to close a fishery to regulate for sustainability. And here's where I, where I think blue finance can help, not necessarily in a particular local project, but you know, if you think about the potential of blue bonds as debt instruments that could make potentially an upfront payment, let's say to help a government, you know, defer the loss of economic output that would come from, from making painful decisions and allow oceans and, and nature to recover. So I guess the the way I would complement, you know, I agree with everything that's been said, but I think we also need to think about, you know, what do we mean by pipeline? And, and are there, you know, different ways of thinking about blue finance that can help address the root causes of the problem? And I think that requires, you know, almost a way of expanding what we mean by investment projects and what we mean by blue finance and what we mean by opportunities. Well, and I might even go beyond that, take it one step even further away is, is really where we need in real international action and things like plastics. You know, we're looking a lot at plastics and what plastics are doing to coral reefs. And that's on a local basis. But obviously, plastics are an international problem. And often they're outside any geographic boundaries. We really do need strong international action. 
And um, without international treaties that are international agreements that are enforceable, we're not going to succeed in attacking some of these bigger issues. Carolina, what do you think? Well, again, I agree. And I think also, for example, we have right now a bill, a climate change bill in the Congress that set the goal of to be carbon neutral and resilience by 2050. And also it set intermediate goals, okay, and sectorial goals. And I think what is important is to go to the sectors, to go to the territories in order to work with them with concrete actions. But because what happened, of course, I agree that we need international movements and everything, but we need to go in both ways. Okay, We need the big international calls and action and everything, but we also need to develop capacities and to put goals to the sectors and to the territories in order that they are available to cooperate with this. Because what we see also is that a lot of people tell us, okay, but climate change is something really big. Why is that important for me? Okay, there we have a big talent because we need to go there, not with big like statements, just with concrete examples to say, okay, this works for you. That needs a lot of money and a lot of people. That is what we miss here because we need to go there to explain that and to show examples. But I think we need to talk in these both levels, that in a big level, which is international levels and UNFCCC and everything, but also at local level, uh, we need to go there and to work with them. So Alejandro, how do we reconcile the sort of small scale solutions with the big commitments and the big money? Yeah, no, I, I wanted to say something in response to what Carolina was saying, you know, because I think Craig made a very important point on the question of international action. And I think that shouldn't get lost in the sense that uh, we, we are not talking enough about the fact that the vast majority of the oceans is no man's land, legally speaking. Right. You know, when I hear international action, you know, immediately I'm, I'm hearing, you know, how do you regulate economic activities that are investment driven, obviously, and very industrial in a place that has no jurisdictions, you know, and that's where ultimately, if we can't solve that, we are not going to solve oceans. And if we can't solve the financing of that for the financing to go in the right place, we're not really going to solve ocean finance. I would really stress that, that you know, what, what Craig was saying about, about the international domain and but I think the focus of that international action has been has to be to try to move the needle for an agenda that to me feels that has been very slow moving. And, and we've lost, you know, as, as the ocean finance agenda has steered much more towards the impact investment world, we've sort of lost a bit of the perspective of these bigger questions around the ocean. The fact that, that the high seas are not regulated and the fact that, you know, to Carolina's point, I mean, ultimately, this agenda is divided into two. Either we're talking about the economic exclusive zone of a government, where a government can take action and should actually regulate for the entirety of its marine resources, or we're talking about the no man's land of the high seas that is basically a free for all. And figuring out how we bring finance into that equation is fundamental. And so, you know, I, I, I just wanted to sort of stress that point, you know, that for me, when, when I hear Craig talking about international, it's not about campaigns, it's not about movements, it's not about declarations. 
It's really about new coordination mechanisms that can enable the financing to be tracked, to be deployed, to understand what assets are operating where, and figure out, you know, ultimately at the level of the UN or whatever comes next, that the law of the high seas just need to be completely revamped. I mean, it just needs to work, right? Uh, and in order to do that, we're going to need, uh, you know, a little bit more push and a little bit more creativity as well. So, Craig, a final reaction to this? I, I agree with everything being said. We need, And we need to do it all. And we, we need to do it all for the planet, for ourselves, for our kids. And and I think on whether we think large or we think local, we, we need to educate. And um, using every example we can and to talk more is, is just so crucial. And, and real examples. I mean, I'm encouraged as, you know, we were talking about the high seas again, the shipping industry because of consumer and business pressures are beginning to really think about what's going on in the high seas. And I hope something will come where we'll have some exciting finance initiatives there. And I think we need examples like what's going on in Chile, like what's going on in Australia to show to people we can make a difference. But as in everything in the climate world, we need it all and we need it fast. Wonderful. Again, we barely scratched the surface here. I feel we could have gone left, right and center on many of those topics. But thank you all three so, so much. This was again another layer on the Uh, investment space into the ocean. So very happy to have a chance to unpack some of that with you. And yeah, thank you again very much. Thank you to my guests this week, Carolina Ormenetta, Alejandro Litovsky and Craig Kogut. In the next episode, we're picking up the topic of the need and challenges of measuring real impacts on people and ecosystems. How do you verify and report on whether a nature-based solution actually benefits ecosystem health and improves local livelihoods? Investing for Ocean Impact is a fresh air production on behalf of IUCN's Blue Natural Capital Financing Facility. It was produced by Phil Sansom with production assistance from Michelle Burnett. Follow or subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to find out more about what IUCN and the BNCFF does, please visit our website, bluenaturalcapital.org. Until next time, I'm Dorothy Hare. Thanks for listening. <laughs>